chapter 10. We'll bring those lights up for you. Thanks for coming tonight. Thanks for uh, just jumping in and singing and just being together. Uh, happy Labor Day weekend. Um, next Sunday, we're going we're gonna to start a series that I was planning to do this fall, and the flood is not going to keep us from that. Um, but I do feel like it's still kind of appropriate for us to be thinking in terms of you know, what's going on in our city and in our, this, you know, the parishes around us, and uh, what's our response going to continue to be, and, and what should that look like for us? What does God have in mind for this? Um, I think we just have to continue to pay attention. And so last Sunday, uh, there was just kind of a, maybe a, a, a family like vision casting, perhaps, of what it, what it seems like God is, is wanting to instill in us. As a family, as a church family, uh, using the parable of the talents, where um, you know Jesus told this story, Master goes away for a while and, and takes three of his servants and entrusts different things to them, different amounts of money to them, based on what they were ready for. And uh, you know, I just kind of talked about this this idea that we have been, in, if you have been entrusted with something, then you are prepared for it. And so this flood and and the response to this and the rebuilding and everything, just the trauma that we have experienced. Um, God has entrusted that to us. We are to be responsible with it. And in the story, uh, two of the stewards, were they were responsible. They knew exactly what the master wanted done with his money, and they went out and they did what he would have done in their place. And then one of them uh, dug a hole in the ground and buried it and, uh, you know, whatever. And so um, we're in trying to discern what does it look like to be faithful stewards with this flood and the people that have been affected um, we're continuing to try to discern what that looks like corporately as a church family, but we definitely know what it means to just bury it in the ground. That's that we understand. You know, it would be to do nothing with it, to just take care of just take care of our own, and then once our own are okay, then don't worry about anything else happening in the entire region around us. That's not that would be burying it in the ground. What does faithfulness look like? We're just asking Jesus to keep showing us at a corporate level. Tonight I want to just kind of maybe focus in a little bit because it's easy to maybe understand what a church-wide vision for this would be. It might not be as easy to discern what an individual vision for this would look like. So maybe you can sit there and you can hear, okay, I know that as a church we're not going to bury it in the ground and we're going to be faithful with it, but what is my role in that? What do I have, what, how do I fit into that happening? That might not be as easy to discern. And so maybe in a few minutes it'll be a little more clear. Or maybe you'll have a passage that you can go back to and read and pray for discernment to let the Lord show you exactly what that means. So in Luke uh, 10, we have a very familiar story. Even like outside of the church, people know the Good Samaritan story. Um, it's you know pretty well known. And so what I want to do is just kind of look at this story and see if... Uh, see how this parable could maybe inform our processing as individuals as what faithful stewardship looks like. Let's, let's read it, um, starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. Okay, so he's, his, him would be Jesus. 
So a, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Alright, so let's, let's stop right there. This guy was... At first, it seems like he's asking just a very like you know genuine question. Um, other than the fact that it said he was trying to test Jesus, which never ends ends well, any time. Um, so he just asked him a question. Jesus, um, as usual, answers his question with a question, and the guy gets the gets the answer right. Jesus says, "Well, what does the law say?" And he says, "Love God, love your neighbor." Uh, that's what the law says. Jesus said, "Yep, that's it." And if he had just stopped there. He probably wouldn't have made the Bible. You know, he probably wouldn't have made the cut, whatever the cut was, to get in here. But no, this guy, he had something else that was kind of like this ulterior motive that was in there. He kind of kept pressing. And in verse 29, when he says, it says, But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? There could be a very pure way to ask that question, but when it says he was desiring to justify himself, that tells us that there's more going on. That he wasn't really trying to uh, ask Jesus for clarification. He was trying to find out where's the line between neighbor and not neighbor. Like, what's the bare minimum I have to do to still inherit eternal life because I have loved my neighbor as myself? Um, of all the people that are out there, who exactly is, is my neighbor? It was, this, it was this pathway of exclusion. He was trying to find out who he had to love as himself and who he didn't have to love as himself. And the assumption may have been that Jesus would say, well, uh, your neighbor is it's a fellow Jew. Like all of us who are children of Israel, that's who your neighbor is. Because uh, that's a lot of, of how that culture kind of functioned. You like you were kind of at the center of, of your world, and then there was like your immediate family, and maybe your like other relatives, and then it was anyone who is Jewish, and then it was like everybody else is kind of like on these outer rungs of responsibility. And so Israel was, they, they were just known for doing a, a good job of taking care of themselves and each other. But when it came to other people, it was just kind of not one of those things that they were really into. Um, which is really ironic considering that the whole Old Testament is built on God trying to get His people to be a blessing to people that are not their own. And so the first commandment to love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, this holistic love of God, uh, you know, we, we don't always know what that means, but you know, it's kind of something that's maybe not too hard to grasp in some ways. Commandment two, love your neighbor as yourself. Um, it can be interpreted you know, to mean, well, love your neighbor as much as you love your own self, but that's not really what it means. It really means love your neighbor as though they are one of your own kinsmen, as though they are part of your own family. That that's what commandment two is about. And so this guy's trying to find out, okay, exactly who is my neighbor. They were, like the Jewish community was very resistant to the fact that God was trying to shape them 
into being the kind of people that really care for each other well and care for strangers equally as well. He was trying to form them into that kind of community where hospitality was always on point and it was a priority to the, to the point where he wanted them to be known throughout the world as the, like the most like welcoming place to go was to pass through Israel. Because these people who are devoted to this God, they, are, like, they treat us like we are their long-lost family. And that God would use that hospitality and that generosity and that, that the people coming in and seeing their love for Yahweh and that he would use that to draw them in. That that's the plan. That's the plan for Israel. That's the plan for the Christian church. But Israel was resistant to that. They just kind of wanted to know what's the bare minimum I have to do to still get that well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And maybe that's kind of familiar to us as well, you know. Sometimes we, I think we all kind of want to know how, you know, how, to what extreme does love your neighbor really, like how far do we go with that? What does that really look like? Um, we maybe would never go up to Jesus and say, dude, just tell me what the bare minimum is, you know. But perhaps there's a part of us that kind of lives that way sometimes or, or can relate to the struggle of God trying to shape us into the people who are incredibly others-centered or stranger-centered. And um, yeah, that's just not something that's comfortable sometimes and whatever. And so, so this dialogue that is happening here before he gets into the story is really, really interesting. That you have people trying to... Trying to, to Get God himself to be really specific about what he wants. And Jesus, of course, once again, doesn't answer the dude's question. He gives him a story that maybe doesn't always make sense. But he could have rebuked him. So look at verse 30. It says, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going uh, down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. All right? So there are are kind of four, four characters in this story. There's the man who was robbed and beaten and left for dead. There's a priest, there's a Levite, there's a Samaritan. All right. So the man who was beaten and robbed and left for dead, that was, that was a very common thing on this particular stretch of highway. And so Jesus, in answering this question, who exactly is my neighbor, he creates this scenario that everyone listening would have been pretty familiar with. Um, so this was not some far, like, like far-reaching story that would never happen. This was really, really practical. So you have the guy, he's laying on the road, um, you know, left for dead. The second character comes along, and it's a priest. 
And the priests, they had responsibilities in the temple. These were descendants of Aaron. These were like very important people in like Jewish culture and in the community. And so the priests should have been the most likely person in the whole community to stop and help this guy. And the assumption is that the guy who was laying on the ground is Jewish. So a a Jewish priest sees a Jewish man beaten and left for dead and passes by on the other side of the road pretending not to see him. So Jesus has created this story, very familiar scenario, takes in the guy who should be the hero and makes him uh, the, the, like the, the great disappointment. Then the Levite comes through. Levites were, they were like assistants to the priest. They also had a lot of responsibilities in the, in the temple um, and so they were, let's say maybe they were the second most likely to stop in, in, in their minds of the listeners. And the Levite does the same thing, sees him, goes the other side of the road and keeps going. So Jesus has created this, this scenario that at this, at this point was probably a little, it was familiar. And then it was like, there's no way that one of our priests would pass this guy up. There's no way that one of our Levites would pass this guy up. And then the fourth character comes in, and it's a Samaritan. And that's difficult for us, you know, in this day and age to probably understand. But there was a, a deep-rooted hatred for Samaritans by, like, the whole Jewish community. And so if you were to, uh, I thought through a couple different examples, and I was like, none of these are, no, I'm not saying any of these, you know. Like, it's just not a good situation. But just imagine that Jesus was talking to some people who had an, like a, a massive hatred for Samaritans. And he creates a, a situation where the Samaritan is the hero. It would go against everything that, like they just would not understand what that meant. It would not compute for them at all. They would actually have been offended that a Samaritan would have been the hero of a story. Or that a Samaritan would have helped someone who is Jewish. They were viewed. They were they were a mixture of different uh, ethnicities, which was this huge thing to to Jews. That and at this point in time, it was all about the purity of your bloodline, and so this was an offensive group of people to them. And so, for Jesus to tell a story, to make up a story, and to have the Samaritan be the hero, would have it would have rattled them. It would have bothered them. Uh, they would have hated it. It would have given them a reason to, you know, kill Jesus or something at some point. You know, like, it's really like a bad situation from the hearer. But yet Jesus is strategically telling this story. Because he's trying to answer the question, who is my neighbor? And so those cultural things might be a little bit confusing. But if we can think in terms of, he took the most likely, like the heroes, the spiritual community heroes of that time and said, the first one uh, dropped the ball. The second one dropped the ball. And who picked up the ball? The person that you hate the most. So Jesus is this masterful storyteller, you know, this, this brilliant teacher. And that's the scenario that he presents to them. So there's a few details in, in this, like, thing, this story here that I think are interesting. Like verse 33, it says that the Samaritan had compassion. Like he saw the wounded man and he had compassion. Um, then in verse 34, it says, you know, it tells about him that he tended to his initial wounds. Like he, 
he, you know, whatever, uh, maybe he was bleeding and he took care of that and he bandaged him up and he like took care of him and he put him on the donkey. Uh, I assume it was a donkey. It just says an animal, but we'll go with donkey. Put him on the donkey and took him to a hotel. And so he, he like bandaged his wounds, took him out of the place of danger, took him to a place of safety, um, secured his ongoing care, left some money with the innkeeper. And then he said, and when I come back, uh, if there's any more costs incurred, I'll pay that later on. So there's this follow-up that was there. So he took care of his initial needs. He brought him to a place of safety. He secured his ongoing care. And he ensured his own follow-up later on. Now this is something, this is like, you know, when Jesus talks about, uh, you know, if, if someone asks you for a shirt, give them your coat as well. Or carry this one mile, go the second mile. Like this is the kind of thing that we're seeing in real life from this Samaritan. And while we might not be able to relate to the, the cultural and like, like, you know, the ethnicity issues and that kind of stuff that were present here, I think that we can all look at that and say, man, that, that guy did more than just like, you know, help a guy out for a second. He did more than, he did more than, you know, he didn't just, you know, the other guys passed him up, but this guy didn't, he, he stopped and he was like, hey, do you, are you okay? Like, what do you need? And, and he saw a need and he met a need. And then he started thinking forward. Well, this guy, he can't lay here in the road, even though I've bandaged him up. And so I got to take him somewhere. And so he put him on the donkey and then like, was like, let's go find a place to take him. And they found a, a hotel and he's like, okay, that's cool. And let me kind of nurse this guy back to health a little bit. And then this guy's not ready to travel yet. So, uh, but I, I, I do have to go. So let me leave some money and let me talk to the innkeeper and convince him I'm a legit guy, even though I'm a Samaritan. And uh, let me kind of make sure that's happened and assure him that I'm going to come back and check on this guy and I'll cover all his bills. And I mean, that's like that's second mile, third mile, fourth mile, fifth mile. This is like big, 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 big stuff. So then Jesus in verse 36, after telling this story, answers the lawyer's question with another question. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Notice he didn't say the Samaritan. He said, the one that showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Who was a neighbor to this man? It was the one who showed him mercy. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, this, is, this kind of shows that. Because isn't that what you would do for your own family? Maybe that's not a good question for some. Isn't this ideally what you would do for your family? Parents, isn't this what you would do for your kid? You find your kid and they're wounded and they're hurt. You don't just be like, rub some dirt on it. You know, like, grow up. You know, you're like, no. Let me take care of this. And you bandage them up and you... You get them to a safe place and you check on them. And if they need to go to the doctor, you take them to the doctor. And if they got to get shots, you get them shots, you know. They got to take their medicine and you continue to, to, to tend to them and care for them and check on them and worry about them and pray for them and follow up and follow up and follow up. That's love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it means to be a neighbor to someone is to, to see someone in their distress and you show them mercy. 
See, the call to commandment two for us, you know, love God, commandment one, love your neighbor as yourself, commandment two, it's, it's constant, you know, it's ongoing. And so the, the call to love our neighbor is true whether they're in crisis or not. But when someone's in crisis, there's, this, there's these unique opportunities to love them. See, this Samaritan um, and this Jewish guy, they could have loved one another as their neighbors without being in crisis, but here was this opportunity. Here was this moment entrusted to this Samaritan. And he looked at him and he had compassion and he acted on it. Neighbors show mercy. And that shows us something, that God has a unique heart for people, not a unique heart, but a very special heart for people who are in in distress. Sometimes people talk about mercy as um, it's getting more than you deserve to get. You know, there's some sort of tie in there like that. But really, mercy, mercy is associated with pain. Like any time the Bible talks about mercy, it's always dealing with people who are, who are struggling. They're in distress. They're in crisis. And so when we're asking God to have mercy, we're asking God to, to meet us in our pain, to reach into our, our distress, to, to come to us in crisis and to help us and to lead us. We sang the song Hosanna, and that, that word is, is about crying out for rescue for someone. And God's mercy is Him coming to us in that distress. It's His kindness to us. It's His compassion to us. And so the Good Samaritan story shows us what God's compassion is to us when we are uh, beaten up, robbed, and left for dead. You know, we're in this situation that we cannot change. Whether that's stuck in sin and, we, and there's nothing we can do and we needed that rescuer like we just sang about, or even times that when life just like deals us something that is just terrible, we're in distress and God comes to us and God sends His people to those in distress. That's His mercy reaching into their lives. And so to, to love our neighbor as ourselves is unique in this moment for us as a city and as a region. So the priest and the Levite, we don't know why they kept going. We really don't. It doesn't say anything other than that they, they kept on. So you could assume that they were like, well, I, you know, I got to get to the temple. I got stuff to do. But somewhere in there, there was a there was a counting of the cost. You know, they're kind of in this situation of keep going where I was going to do what I was you know going to do and t- tend to my responsibilities, or stop and help this guy. And so somewhere in there, there was a weighing of the cost, and to them, to the priest and the Levite, it was. Whatever they were going to lose by stopping to help this guy was not worth it to them. They counted the cost. They said, no, it's not worth it. Maybe, maybe they had stuff to do. Maybe they assumed someone else would do it. Maybe they were you know, afraid of blood. Whatever it was, it doesn't, we don't really know. But we know that they kept going. And somewhere in there, there's that accounting that happens in our minds. We've all been in situations where you're, where like, you're like, should I help or should I not help? And sometimes we help and sometimes we don't help. And sometimes it's just that instant moment where you're driving and you don't have a time to really like, wait, let me make a list of my pros and cons of stopping, you know. But they're walking down a path. Like they are not like going 65 miles an hour, an hour down the interstate. And should I help someone that has a flat tire? They're walking down a road 
and they're priests, you know. And they counted the cost and they said, no, it's not worth it. And the Samaritan came along and he probably counted the cost too. We don't, we don't know why he stopped other than the fact that he had compassion. And that compassion obviously made him weigh out whatever he was going to do and then whatever the cost was of helping this guy. And he decided, whatever it costs me to stop and help him is worth it. So maybe he was going to a job interview. Maybe he was going to, um, to a family obligation. Maybe he was going to do this, or maybe he was going to do that, or whatever. But he, in that moment, said, this is what I, this is what I need to do. And if I lose that job interview, that's fine. You know? If I miss that appointment, if my, if my family is wondering where I am, because I don't have cell coverage here, or whatever, it's going to be fine, that's going to be fine. This guy, this guy needs my help now, in this moment. So he counted the costs also. And all of the cultural things aside, I mean, this whole story, there's this connection between the first commandment and the second commandment. And we see that compassion and where that came from. That to be a neighbor, to love other people as ourselves, is like directly comes from that, that love for God. And so Jesus says, go and do likewise. So he tells the, the lawyer. But that's the, that's, that's the application point for this. It's like, go and do like that Samaritan did. You see, some, you see someone in distress. You see someone with a need. Meet it. Take care of it. Count that cost and make the sacrifice. Make, do what it takes. This person needs your help. This person is important. This person was made in the image of God. This, this person is worth dying on a cross for. You know? And so in that distress and in those moments, there is this unique opportunity for the mercy of God to show up in many different forms and take care of people and bless them and continue to walk with them. So what is the, uh, like, how do we apply this? What does this have to do with it? I mean, some of it's probably obvious, and some of it you know, maybe isn't. And so like a good preacher, I came up with three things, because that's what they taught me in seminary. But uh, they don't all start with the same letter this time. So. I think there's three things that we can learn from, from Jesus' story as he illustrates what it means to be a neighbor. And that's what we're going for. You know? We want to love the Lord, and we want that, His compassion to come to us as we see people around us that are in distress. The first thing, I think, is, is we simply pay attention. The priest paid attention, the Levite paid attention, the Samaritan paid attention. Saw someone in distress and kept, to him kept going. But you know, we, we're, we're traveling through this life of ours, and there's people all around us, and everyone that you're coming in contact with has been affected by this flood somehow. You know, on one extreme you have people who have lost everything. On the other extreme you have people who have lost nothing. And so the people who have lost everything are trying to like put it back together. And the people who have lost nothing, some of them are pretending like this didn't happen. And some of them are so riddled with guilt that they don't know what to do with themselves. And in the best case scenario, the people who haven't lost anything are helping those who have lost everything. That's really, that's, that's the best, right? 
But everyone has been affected. Everyone that you're coming in contact with has been impacted by this. And so if we are good at paying attention, we'll notice things, we'll initiate things. So if you, if you are in a workplace environment, and you're back in the rhythms of work now, or the rhythms of school, and that kind of stuff, this is an opportunity for you to just ask their coworkers, like, hey, hey, how'd your house come out in the flood? You probably had those conversations already. That first day back at work, maybe, it was like, hey, how'd you turn out? How'd you come out? How'd you come out? Hey, I heard this, you know, whatever, whatever. Ask them questions. If you know people who are from the, the affected areas, or they know they're kind of from around here, um, ask them. It's not weird anymore. It used to be, it was weird at first, you know, like you were like, should we bring it up? Is it too soon? Now, just bring it up. Ask them. Ask their story. So someone flooded it, like, whoa, how'd you... What was it? What, did you ride it out? Did you, were you evacuated you know, by boat or did you walk through water? Like, what was your, tell us your story. Because those people need to tell their stories. And if you're in this room, you need to tell your story. And you need to know that people want to hear them. I've, I, there have been a couple of times people have started to kind of tell their story and then they kind of hit pause. They're like, oh, nobody wants to hear that. No, everybody wants to hear it. And for you to love your neighbor means to ask, like, well, tell me about it. And you need to listen to them. Don't one-up them. (laughs) Don't interrupt them. Just listen. Let them just stream of consciousness tell you the whole story. And if they start bawling, crying, let them cry. And if they're laughing through it, laugh with them. But you know, the, the, the truth is, like, you know, we're, we're between the advents of Jesus, right? He's, He's come once, he's coming again, and here we are waiting. And we're not here to just take care of our own. I think that's a part of what Jesus was, was trying to instill in this group of Jewish listeners. I think he was looking at them and he was like, man, you guys are you're so hung up on just taking care of other Jewish people that you're missing the point of the kingdom you're missing the point of, of how you're strategically placed, like geographically on the map. All these trade routes all went right through Israel. He's like, you're missing it. You're missing the point of the law. You're missing the point of, of the Levitical, like, uh, Levitical system and the sacrificial system. You're missing the point. I've positioned you to be a blessing to the nations. That's the promise of Abraham that's come through, is that, is that through him the nations would be blessed, and that's them. He's like, you're just missing it. And so for us, we have to pay attention because here we are, and this is what we're here to do. We're here to take care of each other, yes. Within the church family, yes, we should be taking care of each other. And from that care is this outward care that goes as well. We've been, you know, I talked about that last week a little bit. And so what you and I need to do is we have to continue to just say, God, would you give me your eyes and your ears for the people that are around me? So it could be coworkers, it could be people you're in class with, it could be neighbors on your street, it could be people that you're friends with on Facebook, it could be your cashier at Walmart, it could just be all these different things, but we have this, this topic that everyone can talk about right now, and that never happens. Except like when the Saints won the Super Bowl, and like some of those kind of like goofy things. But this is like a, a really deep thing that we can all talk about, and for us, we just have to pay attention when people's behaviors are changing or when they're sad or when they're, you know, if, you, if there's someone on your street that now has six cars parked at their house and they used to only have one, 
They're probably housing people who have been displaced. Maybe you want to bring them some food. Maybe you want to find out, hey, how come you got so many cars now? You know? Those kinds of things are where we are culturally. And so if you are praying and asking God, God, will you show me what my role in this? If the church is, if we as Living Hope are trying to not take our foot off the gas and we're not going to bury it in the ground and we're going to be faithful, that means a bunch of, of little individual stewards, all of us trying to be faithful. And so if you're asking God for help with that, and you're asking for his eyes and his ears, and he's showing you, look at this need, look at this need, look at this need, look at this person, look what this person posted on Facebook, look who this person, look, you haven't heard from this person in a long time, look at this, look at this, look at this. It probably won't be 50 things, I just named a bunch of them. But if you're asking God and he's showing you, you know what's going to happen? There's going to well up, this compassion is going to well up in you. That same compassion you saw from the Samaritan. And it's going to bother you. And it's going to, you're going to have this like heart for these, these people and this, this person or this situation. And maybe if you, have, if you have flooded yourself, that means that you're able to say, hey, I flooded too. Let's talk. Or you're able to say, I didn't flood. And I'm so sorry that you did flood, but I want to help you. But we have to pay attention. We have to count the cost. You have to count the cost of helping people and you have to count the cost of not helping people. In Matthew 25, you know, Jesus says, you know, I was, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. That whole thing is all about paying attention. You pay attention to hungry people. You pay attention to thirsty people. You pay attention to people in crisis and distress. And whether it's about their houses still being wet or whether it's about you know, battling with FEMA or whatever it is that's going on around us, for us to be there and to be neighbors with them means that we pay attention to their lives. And, not, and so when you're praying and you're asking God for his eyes and his ears and now you're dialed in and now there's some, some compassion because you've been paying attention, then the Samaritan, what did he do? He stopped and he was like, okay, I'm... I know that there's need here, and I've got to find out more details. What does this person need in the moment? And so once we're paying attention, then we zero in and we say, okay, how, what, do you, what do you need right now? How can I help you right now? It may be that all they really need is someone to say, hey, what do you need right now? Or maybe they need help with their house, or maybe they just need some wisdom, or maybe they've heard so many rumors about having to raise their house up this much and insurance and bulldozing it and green space from FEMA and all this kind of stuff that they're like, I just don't know what, I don't know who to believe, I have no idea. You'd be surprised how many houses that our Living Hope people have been in and at some, at some point in the process, the homeowners have said, look, I, just, I don't really know what to do. If y'all been gutting houses, just you tell me. Whatever y'all say to do, it's fine. I, I don't have anybody to help me make decisions. And every time I just want to crumble. Because there are people that have a lot of resources. They have, they have friends and family and churches. And they have, like, they're just kind of, they are getting through it. And then there are people who don't have any of that stuff. And they don't know what to do. And that, to me, is where the church should be paying attention to the needs. And stepping in and saying, well, what do you need from us? So we've gone into some houses and we said, hey, we heard that you could use some help. And you get there and they're like, I don't really know what to do. I got two feet of water and uh, 
I don't know where to start. And it's so awesome to say, well, we're not contractors, and we're not insurance people, and we're not FEMA, we're not anyone else, but everybody else is cutting you know, four feet of sheetrock out of their house, so we can do that for you. We can tear those cabinets out. We can take that stuff to the road. Um, we can talk to you. We can pray with you. We can get your information and follow up with you, you know, that kind of stuff. Those kinds of things are all around us. And so not only are we paying attention, that was the first point. The second thing is there has to be a response. You have to respond to what you're paying attention to. So the Samaritan responded to those initial needs and those ongoing needs, and you and I do the same thing. And so when you find someone in crisis, you have to figure out for yourself, what can I do to help this person? If someone's like, hey, I really need someone with a bulldozer to come knock my house down, you, probably, you may not be able to help them do that. If someone says, I need a contractor, if someone says, I need that crazy machine that helps you cut up the glued down tile or whatever, you may not have that machine. And in those cases, you say, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't help you do that. Well, you know what's been awesome is to watch the creativity of God's people and saying, okay, um, I may not be able to do this, but do you have any dirty clothes that I can wash? Do you have dishes and stuff that I can just kind of take care of? Do you need food? Do you... Do you need a ride somewhere? Do you need help moving stuff from somewhere else? Do you need storage bins? Do you need contractor bags? Do you need this? Do you need this? Do you need this? Do you need a team to just come in and you just boss them around? Um, all of those creative things for us, that's what the individual stewardship looks like. So you have a Samaritan who looks at a guy and says, this guy needs to be bandaged up, he needs to get to a safe place, and he's going to need some ongoing care. And the Samaritan counted the cost and said, okay, I can do that. So for you, if, you're, uh, if there are some things that, that you can do and some things that you cannot do, so if you're praying and you're asking God, show me, show me, show me, show me. When he shows you, he's not just going like, to help you pay attention to a need and then just like, leave you hanging. He's going to show you how to meet that need. So maybe you can meet it. Maybe there's someone else you know that can meet it. There's been so many emails that have come into the staff that it's like, hey, I met this person, know this person, however, they need some help. Here's their information. Whatever. See what you can do. Pass those needs on. Like All those kinds of things are the way that the church shows up. There's a lot of that in the first week or two. But you know, the crisis isn't, isn't over. There's one lady that's been emailing us. She's hoping to get into her house Tuesday for the first time. And so it's funny because it's like, man, you got some people that are like, Talking like sheetrock soon, you know, and other people whose the water still is not out of their house yet. And so the need, it's just so widespread that everybody's timelines are different and all that stuff. And so we're continuing to try to meet those needs, but help can look a number of different ways. So if you're asking God, okay, I want to be a neighbor to people, but I need you to show me what that looks like. If every one of us in this room is doing that, then corporately, we are not burying it in the ground. Then we are being faithful with it. And we're so interconnected here that if there's a need you come across and you can't meet it, there's probably someone else that can help you figure it out. And so how amazing to go to someone who doesn't know what to do and say, look, um, as a Christian, I believe that God really cares about what you're going through. And I care about what you're going through. So I'm going to help you. I'm going to help you get some answers. I'm going to help you get some hands over here to help out. I'm going to see. I'm going to do everything I can possibly do 
Um, because God has a way of, uh, God wants to meet you in this crisis. It could just be simple. You don't have to like throw a Bible at them, you know, or like throw a track at them or something like that. You don't have to preach at them. You can just say, hey, I think God really cares about this, so let me see how I can help. There it is. We have so many people that have been helped because you guys were relaying information and, and networking together and getting teams places, and we have these teams coming in, and those kinds of things are all God's mercy reaching into people's lives and saying, this is what it means to be a neighbor. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. This is what it means to treat strangers like family. And so what does that look like for you? Well, only Jesus knows what that looks like for you as an individual. But us together as a group, um, I think I'm excited about where things are headed in the next couple weeks for sure. So we're paying attention, and then we're responding and Jesus is guiding that process. The third thing that the Good Samaritan did was he followed up. And to me, I'm the worst. This is like the worst thing for me. You know? I really struggle with that. It's hard to follow up like a whole bunch. But if you helped work in someone's house, and you've been praying for that person, or if you haven't been praying, maybe start praying for them. But you've been thinking about that person. We have all their information. And you can say, hey... There was this like Saturday, I went with this, or there was this Tuesday, it's after work group, and we went to you know, this lady's house and for like two hours, but I just can't get her off my mind. I just want to call her and see how she's doing. How crazy would that be if Living Hope was not only trying to meet the initial stuff, but then we were following up and checking on how they're doing and where they are in the process and what they need and how amazing would it be if, if, you, if you followed up with someone and they said, you know what I really need? I need about a dozen storage bins. And you were to say, when would you like me to deliver them? Because we have all these bins that have been donated that we really need to go places. You know? Those kinds of things and following up with people and checking up on people and continuing through with it and, and having this personal goal of you as, a, as like being a neighbor to someone. It was like, I want to see everyone in our, our whole region all the way through to moving back in their houses. Or if they're not able to move back in their houses, I want to see, them, I want to see where God puts them, see where God lands. If the church can be the ones, like the, the like first boots on the ground, last boots off the ground kind of thing. If that can be us, then that's what we need to do. But for you, that means you figuring out what does it mean to be a neighbor to your neighbors, like your actual like people you live around, and your people that you work with and go to school with, and and the strangers that you meet. And Jesus says it's really not about the person. I mean, that's a part of the story here. It's he's like it's really not about the technicality of who's your neighbor, who's not your neighbor. Everyone is your neighbor. What makes you a neighbor to them is how you treat them. And how you reach into their pain. That's, that's really what it comes down to. And so God's given us a lot of opportunities to steward. And so we've got to keep continuing that on. So how does that fit into your life? Well, only He knows that. So between the parable of the talents and the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think maybe God can continue to kind of show us what it means to go forward. That we're just paying attention and we're responding and we're following up, just like the Samaritan did. We're showing mercy to those who are in distress. So I don't know, I, you know, I'm not sure what else to do, honestly. Like pastorally, you know, like I just come before the Lord and I'm like, okay, 
This is like the moment. This is like the big, defining, not defining moment, but you know, like this big moment in the history of our, of our whole region. Like this is the time. What are, we, you know, what are we supposed to do? And I was really just felt this morning that the Lord was like, He was basically just kept saying the, putting the word invite on my mind. Jesus invites us into His life, invites us into His kingdom. Jesus is inviting us to join Him in what He's doing in, in the wake of this flood. And so the invitation like, is the out for us to be a part of it. And so, pastorally, like as a corporate like, thing, we're going to keep doing the things that we've been doing, the things that He's given us. But really, to me, it's, it's about the individual efforts that we're given. And so I, as, a, as an individual part of this family, have to come before the Lord and say, Lord, show me. Help me. Help me pay attention. Help me know what to do. Give me the courage. Give me the wisdom to count the costs. And to go forward. So... What does that look like for a college student or um, uh, you know, a stay-at-home mom or working parents or teenagers and that kind of stuff? It's going to be different for all of us. All I can do is just say, Jesus wants you to, to join him. He's inviting you to join him, inviting me to join him. So, there it is. Let's stand together. Adam's going to come and serve communion for us in response. You know, this is the worst thing batteries has ever seen. And that door. <laughs> Second worst. It's the worst thing batteries has ever seen. And so wouldn't it be just like Jesus to have people come to know Him as Lord and Savior through this? Like, Don't you think that that's part of what's going on? Part of what Jesus wants to do? He wants to take, take us in this moment when we're just not ourselves. And for some reason, that makes us pay attention even more. And so Adam's is going to be here serving communion. And we're going to sing some songs. And, and really, as you approach the table, if this is a way that you want to respond and tear the bread off and dip it in the juice, this is really what we're inviting people to. If Jesus wants to use a flooded house or a person in crisis or all the dirty laundry and all those kind of things, if that's the pathway he wants to get people to this table, then we gotta, we got to like let him do his thing. And so as we sing about this, this is maybe prophetic in a way. It's maybe a way of us saying, God, we, we want this flood to be used for your glory and for people to know you because of it. That, I mean, there's, can you imagine a better goal as a neighbor? Yeah, so let me pray for us.